This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. And what can I tell you? His name is on the tip of your tongue. You know all about his research. You know all about the charts that the internet created based on his research. You probably didn't know that that wasn't originally his work. David Dunning, famous for the Dunning-Kruger effect, a professor of psychology at Michigan. We talk about everything, his research, why people don't know what they don't know, how we could get better at decision making. Just absolutely a fascinating conversation. If you're at all interested in human cognition and psychology, in why we think we're better at tasks than we really are, then you're going to find this to be an absolutely fascinating discussion. So with no further ado, my conversation with David Dunning. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is David Dunning. He is a professor of psychology at the University of Michigan, where he focuses on the psychology underlying human misbelief. He is best known for his 1999 study with colleague Justin Kruger, unskilled and unaware of it, how difficulties in recognizing one's own incompetence lead to self-inflated assessments. Dunning-Kruger showed that people who were the worst performers significantly overestimated how good they were. He is also the author of the book, Self-Insight, Roadblocks and Detours on the Path to Knowing Thyself. David Dunning, welcome to Bloomberg. It's a pleasure to be here. I have been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. I am a giant fan of your work, and I have to start with a really simple question. What's the origin of the study? What led you to a thesis that we're really bad at self-evaluation? Well, if you're an academic, uh, you meet up with uh, many students, and you meet up with many colleagues who say outrageous things. And you just have to wonder, don't they know what they're saying is, uh, let me say this diplomatically, odd, uh, suboptimal. And over the years, I just was intrigued with finding out whether or not people knew when they were saying things that were uh, outrageous, uh, were obviously wrong on the face of it. And so uh, one day, Justin Kruger walked into my office, said he wanted to do a study with me. And I said, well, I have this high, uh, high risk reward study to do. And it has to do with a question I've often wondered about. And so we did the, the first uh, original series of studies and were astonished at how little people who didn't know didn't know about how little they knew. So I was under the impression that most academics have a thesis and there's some data supporting it. And when they go out and test it, they have a little confirmation bias and they see what they expected to see. You're saying you guys were just shocked by the results of the study. That's right. I mean, we expected it to work because if you think about the logic of it, it has to work. The question was one of magnitude. Uh, when a, a student was failing a course, for example, or we were giving them a, a pop quiz on grammar, uh, did uh, they have some inkling that they were performing really poorly? And the answer was maybe a little, but not much, and they were missing their true performance level by a mile. By a mile. So, so how much of this, that, that really raises um, a number of questions. So I, I love the phrase metacognition, the ability to self-evaluate your skill set, and your findings essentially find that this is highly correlated with an underlying skill. Whenever I try and explain this to a layperson, it's 
pro golfers know how good they are and where the weaknesses in their games are. Amateurs have no idea that they're not remotely as good as they think they are. Is that, is that a fair? Oh, uh, I'm a perfect example of this. So when I go out and golf, uh, I often end up in the uh, in the rough when I uh, when I drive the ball, and uh, then I see the ball go in the rough, and I go out to find it later on, and I'm always over guessing how far the ball went uh, in the rough by about 20, 30 yards. And I know this, yet every time I drive the ball into the rough, I'm looking in the wrong place. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I mean, amateur golfers don't know such terms as course management, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a number of concepts, a number of ideas they just simply don't have available to them. And as a consequence, they think they're, they're doing the best possible job when, in fact, there's a whole realm of competencies they don't know about. They're just wholly unaware of what they don't know about. That's right. So you begin the the... 1999 paper with a amusing anecdote. Tell us about the Pittsburgh bank robber MacArthur Wheeler. Well, MacArthur Wheeler uh, was a uh, aspirant uh, bank robber who decided to go out and rob, but needed a disguise. And he had heard that if you rub your face with lemon juice, it renders the face um, uh, fuzzy or even uh, uh, invisible to uh, bank security uh, cameras. And so he actually did test it out. He actually rubbed his face with lemon juice at home, pointed a Polaroid camera or whatever uh, at, at his face, and then he wasn't there. He misaimed the camera. <laughs> he thought he was invisible. But he thought he was invisible. He went out with no actual disguise, Rob. Two Pittsburgh area banks during the daytime um, uh, was uh, immediately caught on security cameras. Uh, those uh, tapes were broadcast on the news, and he himself was uh, caught before the eleven o'clock news hour. And he was incredulous because, as he said, "I wore the juice. I wore the juice." Uh, so um, thus ended his career. Uh, but these are the sorts of mistakes we make all the time. We think we we have a strategy that's going to work and. To our surprise, the world has a different uh, lesson for us to learn. So metacognition sometimes looks a little bit like overconfidence. How similar or different are the two? Well, metacognition is a number of things, uh, a number of skills that underlie um, being able to evaluate your uh, judgments, uh, evaluate your decisions. So some often it's overconfidence. Usually it's overconfidence. Uh, it can be underconfidence, thinking you can't do something that you can do. Uh, it might be overconfidence or underconfidence, but does your confidence rise and fall with the accuracy of your judgment? So is there a relationship, uh, whether or not your confidence is, is a speedometer that overstates or understates how well uh, you're doing? Uh, but there, it also is knowing how to make a judgment, mm-hmm. uh, knowing when to stop thinking and start acting. So uh, n- knowing when... Uh, there's a doubt that you really should be following up on. So uh, overconfidence is a phenomenon that I think lies within a whole family of skills that you can call metacognition, which is basically skill in knowing how to evaluate your thinking and control your thinking. Huh, quite fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about your 1999 paper, Unskilled and Unaware of It. This blew up into one of the most famous psychology papers Ever, when, when you and Kruger were writing this, did you have any idea that it was going to be this explosive? Uh, no, because I, I 
thought it was going to have trouble being published because it actually is an unusual piece of work given the usual structure of a paper uh, in the journal we ultimately submitted to. So the fact that it blew up was um, a big surprise. Uh, the fact that it got published was also a big surprise. I was just very, very happy because internally I thought it was a good piece of work, but I didn't know if the world was going to agree. So I, I've seen your work misstated in a variety of ways. I'm sure you have also. The one that I notice all the time is stupid people don't know they're stupid. And while that could very well be true, that is not the basic theme of, of your research, is it? No. Uh, we were very clear from the outset that the Dunning-Kruger effect is something that can visit anybody at any time. That is, each of us has our own pockets of uh, incompetence, and we just don't know when we wander into them. So it uh, well, often, uh, the one mistake that uh, people make is thinking about the Dunning-Kruger effect is about them, uh, those, as you say, stupid people out there. And the paper really was really about us and ourselves. and. Mm -hmm being uh, vigilant about the fact that sometimes we're going to wander into our own little personal disasters not knowing that a disaster is imminent. So people trying to explain Dunning-Kruger themselves are suffering from the Dunning-Kruger effect. Oh, in many different ways. So uh, if you give me a moment. Sure. Two different ways uh, that uh, people get it wrong. First is to, uh, is to think about other people, and it's not about me. Uh, the second is thinking that uh, incompetent people are the most confident people in the room. That's not necessarily true. Occasionally that shows up in our data, but they're usually less confident than the really competent people. But not that much. And But the real thing that I think is fascinating, and this has only happened in the past five years, is that if you Google images of the Dunning-Kruger effect. The charts. The, the chart. Well, yeah. the, uh, we did th – those aren't our charts. So you didn't do Mount Stupid or the the – Valley of Despair, as no, they've been called? No, we did not. That it has nothing to do whatsoever with our 99 paper or anything that we did subsequently. And uh, well, I, uh, two notes on that. First, I think it's, it's delicious that a lot of people think of the, the Dunning-Kruger effect. Uh, they're talking about the Dunning-Kruger effect. They're videotaping talks on the Dunning-Kruger effect. And what they're talking about is not the Dunning-Kruger effect. Um, they're suffering the effect <laughs> about the effect itself. Um, uh, that's the, uh, the first, the second note though, is given this situation, we did face a, uh, dilemma in the lab. How do we fix this? How do we correct this? And so, uh, this is true in part, uh, we decided the most efficient ethical thing to do was to steal the idea from the internet. Uh, -huh. uh because the other problem with the idea other than it not being the Dunning-Kruger effect is that it's, it's more interesting than the Dunning-Kruger effect. So, but we stole the idea, tested it, and it turns out that Mount Stupid, Valley of Despair, a plateau of enlightenment, right. time course that people see, that we pretty much get that um, pattern as we pace people through a completely novel task. So, so uh, the internet is right. So, so in other words, and, and I'm, I'm intrigued and fascinated by this, you never put out a chart. I always assumed that that chart had to come from your data because what are people just drawing lines and making it up? And P.S., it intuitively looks right. You would assume, hey, when so I play tennis. I only started recently, less than 10 years ago. And when you start out and you're starting to hit the ball and you feel like you have some control and you have some skill and and then at, you're, you're working your way up that Mount Stupid. And then when you actually start to develop 
some skill, not that I really have, but I'm better than I was five years ago, you realize, oh, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I was just a ball and getting lucky when it catches the tape. And all of a sudden you realize, oh, I'm way down this. Mm -hmm. And then you continue playing. You get a little better and a little better. I don't know if this is all rationalization, but it intuitively seems to make sense. Well, not only does it intuitively make sense, it turns out to make sense. Uh, and in a 2018 paper with Carmen Sanchez, we were able to uh, demonstrate that. Uh, basically what happens is when you start a task, and what we did is we had people, we put people in a post-apocalyptic world where they had to, without supervision, but with feedback, diagnose who was infected with a zombie disease. Right. Uh, uh, hope, hoping that that wasn't something that people had experience with. Mm -hmm. uh, and basically what happens is if you're a beginner, you start out way at the beginning being appropriately cautious. You really don't know what you're doing and you know it. But the problem is, is that you have a few successes. They're probably due to luck more than skill. Uh -huh. And you think you have it. Uh, that is, people uh, arrive at a theory uh, based on data, which is far too early, far too sparse, and far too unreliable. But they think they've got it. And then the next phase that they have to go through is realizing, oh, that theory really doesn't work. Uh, and so we've been able to track that and to show that uh, in a, a number of studies. Uh, so the internet is right. Um, I'm very pleased with its intuition on this one. Um, uh, but it is a little bit odd to get credit for an insight that we never had, but we're very happy to steal. So essentially when you run the data showing um, the correlation between skill and um, ability to self-evaluate, you end up with a chart that looks, in this 2018 paper, looks remarkably similar to all the various pop psychology uh, Mount Stupid charts that are out there? Is well, yeah, as you gain experience, uh, you unfortunately start with a burst of overconfidence. Mm -hmm. I got this. And no, you don't. And then uh, experience basically is correcting your um, flattering impression of your skill as time goes on until at some point learning stops because of uh, uh, experience is not new or uh, learning does experience human limits. But uh, that, uh, that is the pattern. By the way, if uh, anybody flies an airplane, they, they perfectly understand this pattern. It's not beginning pilots who are the most dangerous. It's pilots with, let's say, 600, 800 um, uh, flight hours. Uh, they have enough experience to think that they've got this, and they enter into what's referred to as the killing zone, mm -hmm. uh, where accidents are most likely to happen. All of this raises the question of how much of an independent skill is self-assessment? Or ask differently, do you have to be skilled at the underlying task at hand in order to have any skill set in evaluating it, or can they be learned independently? Well, I think research actually has to look at this uh, a little bit more. Uh, one of the things that we know, and, and we followed up on this, is there's um, direct skill in doing the task, uh, direct skill in doing the judgment. And then there is potentially another layer, which is evaluating the judgment. And the question is, how much does that second judgment rely on knowledge in the first? And from our data, it, uh, it, it's clear that uh, accuracy in knowing whether or not you're right is very correlated with uh, accuracy in the first place. Uh, are you really good at the skill? Can you reach an accurate judgment? Now, that's not true in, in everything. It's not true in golf. 
Um, uh, I know just how bad my golf game is because I tend to score my rounds not in terms of shots, but in terms of how many balls did I lose uh, during <laughs> the course. Of, and uh, that's a that's a metric that gives me a pretty good indication of how bad I am. So, so I don't you, you could self-evaluate without even seeing your score, your your actual scorecard score. You just count the lost balls. Oh, that that yeah, that's the real thing. <laughs> Um, and, uh, but, uh, there are a lot of skills though that, uh, accuracy at the metacognitive task, judging whether or not uh, you're right, that skill really depends on your skill in the first task, which is getting a right judgment. Hmm. And for example, uh, f- financial forecasting, uh, would be an example. Uh, well, that's easy pickings. I well, mean, uh, that's fish in a barrel. From what I hear and giving a good lecture in oh, my really? world. Well, you do have to judge internally, am I really uh, giving a good lecture or not? You can't really depend on the audience. Audiences can be good, audiences can be bad. uh, And so, but uh, the choices you make, um, well, they depend on skill. But your evaluation of those choices probably depend on how good you are at knowing what a good lecturer looks like, what a good lecturer sounds like. So let's talk a little bit about academic psychology and your background and what it's like teaching these days. You got your PhD at Stanford at a time when, and I, I guess you could still say it today, it was the mecca of psychology, wasn't it? Uh, yes, it was. So who, who'd you study under? I studied under Lee Ross uh, primarily. I mm-hmm. uh, was also mentored a little bit by Phoebe Ellsworth, uh, who the last few years I've been a colleague of at Michigan. And, but it really was a village. Um, it, everybody uh, among the faculty was on the same page, so to speak. And so I'd have to say that entire faculty raised me, as it did a lot of other people. Huh, quite interesting. So you've been studying psychology for a long time. Have you found in, in the rest of your uh, life's decision-making that you've become more rational and a better decision-maker? Uh, I think uh, life has provided those lessons, yes. And I've certainly become more experienced in my work. So um, uh, I bear the scars. Uh, I bear the wounds. Uh, but I do think that I am a little wiser because of it. Uh, I, one of the things or one of the principles I often live by is are you vaguely embarrassed by something you did five, ten years ago? And uh, so I'll read uh, things that I did five or ten years ago, and I find myself, I shouldn't have done it that way. And I take that as a pleasant uh, emotion. It suggests I'm in a different place now than I was uh, back then. So I go through something similar, and every five years I'm mortified of the Mm five-year younger version of me. Um, But I never took the next step to say, well, I guess this means I'm growing. i was always been just so horrified at, at the younger version. Um, I didn't make the leap that, oh, I guess this means that that's progress. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, about things like that, about learning and, and norms. You write a lot about social norms. What, mm. Why do you find this topic so, so fascinating? Well, social norms, I think, is the, uh, the surprisingly understudied thing in the behavioral sciences. There are people who study it, but I, social norms are an incredible guide. Uh, both to successful human behavior, not only for individuals, but for society, uh, but also at times um, the source of the greatest calamity, if you will. So, um, what, Why is that? Give, give us some examples uh, to better understand that. Well, I think the, the, the clearest example that comes to mind is uh, let's take norms of politeness and let's talk about the fact 
that uh, the FAA has recorded, I believe, I'm not sure of the numbers, 16 times where the crew in the cockpit of an, of an airliner knew that uh, the pilot was doing something wrong and they were going to crash into a mountain. Uh, the pilot didn't seem to know. But they're polite, and so they indirectly keep telling the pilot, uh, you better change things up. Uh, but they don't say it directly. And if you listen to the black box recordings, those planes crash. Uh, so there's a there's a norm uh, that we uh, try not to embarrass the other person. It's a very important norm uh, for day-to-day life. Imagine day-to-day life without it. But it can go to extremes in terms of not telling pilots that uh, they're on a course to disaster or not telling doctors that they're operating on the wrong leg, for example. Really? and th- So to me, that sounds a lot like just deferral to authority. How much of that is just being a good little soldier, and how much of that is social norms? Or are they you know, two sides of the same coin? Well, they're two sides of the same coin. I mean, we defer to authority, but we also defer to each other. And uh, by and large, that's there because it has an overall positive impact, but it can go too far. Um, so, uh, and the question becomes knowing when it's going too far and being able to break the norm. And what I find interesting, though, is that norms permeate our life, mm-hmm. uh, for example. There are norms that we know that we don't know that we know. So, for example, just just give you a, one example. We know it's uh, uh, Teenage uh, Ninja Turtles as opposed to uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as opposed to uh, Mutant Ninja Teenage Turtles. That sounds right. odd. Uh, there's a rule in how you stack up adjectives before a noun. Uh, and we all follow that rule. And we know when that rule is being violated. But we don't know that rule. But there are a lot of uh, rules in our language, a lot of rules in our behavior, uh, a lot of rules in our etiquette that we're following. But we're so skilled at them, we don't know that we're following we them. We just internalize them and we're not aware of them. That's right. And so, even- so how does that come back? How do you deal with that when you have a deferring co-pilot and the pilot's about to hit a mountain? You have to train people to have a different norm. Uh, So you just completely break the underlying norm and replace it with something for safety purposes. That's right. Either you invent uh, a procedure or you invent a piece of equipment that's going to tell the pilot that they're in error um, or a piece of equipment that prevents the error in the first place. So, for example, in terms of wrong side surgery, and this is a thing, that can happen, but it happens much less than it used to, uh, basically because the medical profession has instituted procedures to just avoid the error, uh, another norm, if you will. So I remember when I had uh, eye surgery, I'm having a pleasant uh, conversation with the eye surgeon um, beforehand, and at the end he kind of says, oh, by the way, it's your right eye we're doing today, right? <laughs> and uh, I go, yes. And, well, he knew it was the right eye, but he had to check, and then he signed my, uh, you know, the, the forehead and, uh, above over my right the, eye. Over the eye. Uh, just to make sure that to avoid wrong side surgery. So I'm just horrified at the thought that there's a room full of surgeons, and someone starts sawing off the wrong leg, and nobody says anything. That- uh, yes. Well, because uh, uh, it is the case that uh, people may be uncertain. They don't know how to intervene. Uh, hey, that's part- the wrong leg. <laughs> Not to be funny, but I'm—it's just terrifying. Oh, I know, but uh, but remember, this in some senses goes all the way back to the Milgram experiment, right? Uh, and the key about the Milgram experiment is not that uh, people gleefully went all the way to shock another person and basically uh, commit involuntary manslaughter. Uh, that's what the Milgram right. experiment was. They didn't know how to get out. And what I'm intrigued by in the Mil- uh, the film of the Milgram experiment, for example, mm-hmm. is that the second thing 
uh, subjects tend to say when they're trying to get out is they say, you can have your 450 back. That is, they, the social contract is a norm. It has to be followed. And they have to abrogate that contract before they can stop doing involuntary manslaughter, uh, essentially. But the real thing about that experiment is people don't know how to dissent. It's not something we're necessarily well-trained in. We're trained in cooperating. Uh, we are trained in deferring. That's not true all the time. But if you start looking around in life, you realize we do it uh, a lot more than we think we're doing it. Uh, but we're not really well trained in the psychology of dissent um, or the uh, psychology of objection. That's just not something we do. So how much of this is institutional, schools, family, whatever, and how much of this is biological, hey, we're social primates and, and that's how we've evolved? I think it's uh, it has to be both. Mm -hmm. um, that is, both uh, people and institutions evolve to uh, create norms that do the best to make the day pleasant, survivable, uh, to make the day efficient. And uh, it does have that, norms do have that effect. Uh, imagine a world in which we didn't have norms. Curb your enthusiasm. Uh, exactly. <laughs> that, that, that is a whole show about what happens if one person decides he's not going to pay attention to any of the social norms. That's absolutely right. And it's incredibly entertaining, but I wouldn't want to live in it. it it's sometimes difficult to watch. It, mm. it just goes to show you how ingrained those norms are the not to not to become a television critic, but uh, the first couple of seasons of that show, I remember having to pause it and just take a break because it was so cringeworthy and so difficult and uncomfortable to watch, even as it was hilarious. Uh, I I never really thought of it in terms of norms. You just think of him as a a you know, cranky, difficult person. But I guess it's all norms. Well, it is all norms. And if there's a biology to it, it's that uh, we are primed uh, to have anxiety mechanisms that are really ready to go uh, when we're in a situation of of norm violation. So it's interesting that you're watching something on television separated from you. You know it's fictional. And yet you're feeling real emotion. And the emotion is exactly the emotion you feel around norm violations. It's anxiety. It's nervousness. It's tension. Um that's fascinating and potentially speaks to how powerful that mechanism is within the body, within the species, um, and why uh, norms hopefully work in society. So before we get off this topic, I, I have to circle back to the Milgram experiment and an unrelated, the marshmallow experiment mm. as well. All these things that, listen, I've been out of college for 100 years, but the things that I read through in, in college-level psychology— I keep reading about different studies that they're going back and saying, well, maybe there was a, uh, a false bias built into the way the test was done. And when we try and recreate this, we're not getting the same level of, uh, of effect. Is the Milgram experiment still the operative obedience to authority in the world of psychology, or has that been rolled back a little bit? I, I think people are reevaluating it as we speak. Uh, I know there has been some journalism that's been antagonistic to the Milgram effect. So I've actually gone back since I teach this stuff in this specific case and read the journalism and going back to the original study. And I think the Milgram experiment itself is still solid. Mm -hmm. But you do have to go back on a case-by-case -case basis because it is the case that um, a lot of classic work is being reevaluated. Uh, and you really do have to go back and um, – 
review the original work and you have to uh, review the replications or review the, the rethinking, if you will. And case by case, um, there are different issues that you really have to think through. So um, in the case of the Milgram experiment, I think that's, uh, that's solid. In the case of the marshmallow experiment, clearly uh, the, uh, the um, headline is still the same. Kids who wait a long time when they're young, have different life outcomes when they're teenagers and so on. Uh, the argument is over what exactly does that represent? Does that represent personality or does that represent social class? Does that represent whether or not what environment you grew up in? Uh, so the issues change depending on which specific topic you are reviewing. Quite interesting. You write about a lot of things beyond metacognition. You cover a whole bunch of other areas uh, we haven't really talked about your book, which is a couple of years old already, Self-Insights, Roadblocks and Detours on the Path to Knowing Thyself. There, there was something in the book that just cracked me up, which you don't normally get in an academic book. Um, you're special. And it turns out, no, most of us are not special. Mm -hmm. And we are wholly unaware of that. We've been told most of our lives how special we are. Tell us why so few of us are actually special. Well, the problem is that, um, well, if you look at the complete person, each of us is special. Right. But if you put us in any situation or any circumstance, we're most gonna, mostly going to act like everybody else. Um, right. Most of us are average. Most of us are average. Most of us are typical. I mean, that uh, in any specific circumstance. So if you aggregate all, that, all of who we are together, we, yeah, we are special. But when it comes to specific situations, no, we're not special. And so what that does leave people with, though, is they, people do have this idea that they are unique, that they are exceptional. And true, as a, con true. As a consequence, just, they just, can't <laughs> – yes. I'm just doing the checkboxes. Yep, right, of course. Oh, absolutely. And uh, so what that means is that uh, it turns out people have a good, rough understanding of human nature. Uh -huh. I'm not going to say it's perfect. That's my work. But they do have a good understanding of human nature. The mistake they make is that they think they uh, stand outside that human nature, <laughs> that they are different. That they're special. That they're special. So, uh, for example, uh, we've done studies. We ask people, uh, there's going to be a, uh, a food drive at your campus, uh, let's say, in a month. Will you contribute to it? Um, and what percentage of people will contribute to it? They're pretty good at nailing the percentage of people on their campus who are going to contribute to the food drive. Uh, they're rather good. They sort of figure what the situation is. They can think about their experience. They come up with a good answer. Uh, and that answer turns out to be right. But when we ask them, okay, what are you going to do? Are you going to contribute? They way overestimate how much they're going to do the right thing. They're going to do the good thing. They're going to do the social thing. Uh, basically because they understand how the situation and external forces will uh, prompt people to donate and to not donate, but they think they stand outside those forces. For them, it's just simply a decision, uh, do I want to donate or not? And a lot of people want to donate, so yeah, I'm going to donate. And it turns out when the time comes, no, they're subject to all these external forces uh, uh, that push against donation as well as push for donation. So they, they turn out to be typical just like everybody else. So let, let's talk about a related topic, um, again from the book, about moral fortitude. You tell the, the story about being on a radio show um, around the time of the Clinton impeachment. I almost said Trump impeachment, but this was <laughs> this is 20-plus years ago. Mm -hmm. 
The radio host goes off on a uh, tirade about infidelity and the moral inferiority and failings of other people. And you had at your fingertips a bunch of research about how everybody's expectations of their own moral superiority sort of fit into the Dunning-Kruger framework. We think we're much better at that than we really are. Well, that's true. Uh, That is because when you move to the moral domain, uh, the ethical domain, uh, people definitely have this holier-than-thou attitude. I won't do it, but other people will do it if it's bad, for example. Uh, I would never uh, cheat on my beloved, but other people, of course, are going to cheat on their beloved. Um, and it turns out we did a number of studies, not on infidelity, but rather will you vote, uh, will you be charitable, will you, tra- uh, will you um, obey traffic laws, uh, for example, and it turns out that people wildly overestimate themselves. Uh, that is, they overestimate how moral, ethical, and good they will be relative to what they think about other people. And they also overestimate how moral and good they're going to be relative to the reality hmm. uh, when we actually uh, test either them or an uh, equivalent group of people. So um, the question for us is people tend to believe they're morally superior. Are they making a mistake about other people? Are they being too cynical about other people? Or are they being too optimistic about the self? And, and it turns out to be, to my surprise, and this is completely the reverse of what I expected, people are wrong about themselves, exactly because they think they're special. Huh. But so, so they're not being cynical about the rest of humanity. They pretty much have them nailed. They just think they're better than everybody else. That's right. With uh, maybe one or two glaring exceptions, uh, people are surprisingly accurate uh, about the general rate, about human nature uh, in general, how other people are going to be buffeted around by external forces. They just think they're, for themselves, they're exempt from those uh, forces. All right. So we have metacognition issues when we're trying to do a specific task that requires skills. There's a similar issue with our own sense of self and ethics and moral turpitude. Um, What other areas are subject to the Dunning-Kruger effect? Well, I don't know what else there might be. Uh, uh, (laughs) Is that everything? Is it just thoughts and action and everything else is left over? Uh, No, there's also the future, uh, if you think. So uh, people are also over-optimistic about their uh, prospects, if you will. Really? Oh, absolutely. Uh, That is, uh, people uh, really underestimate how long it's going to take to complete projects. Uh, They underestimate uh, uh, how uh, long it's going to take for their business to be profitable. Uh, They, uh, when they're thinking about the future, they tend to base their planning and their ideas on the most optimistic scenario rather than the most pessimistic scenario or maybe even the most realistic scenario. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, there are things we miss not only in terms of competence and character but also about our prospects. So how do we explain that? I could imagine, I could concoct a lovely narrative tale as to why having an optimism bias is good for the species even if you're the guy from Cave 73 that doesn't come back from the mammoth hunt, everybody else has foreign meat for the winter, or is this just a crazy narrative story, or is there some evolutionary component to it? Uh, well, there is an evolutionary component to it, uh, an, ad- an adaptability component to it, but it's complicated. Mm-hmm. So the fact that people commit to things far too optimistically really does create those things. I mean... Uh, books are written, um, uh, businesses are developed, um, uh, movies are made. 
uh, even though the people who served them out did far more work and are now far more depressed and tired than they ever imagined they would be at the end of those projects. But um, if they had only been prepared for how long it was going to take, they probably would have come up with a better project, a better business, and a better book. Uh, so uh, things get made, uh, but people will fail, or they won't produce really what they're capable of producing. Huh. V very interesting. All of which leads to one big question, which is why do we seem to make these same errors in judgment? Is it something about the way we learn? Is it something about our fragile egos? Why, as a species, are we unable to get by some of these fairly obvious flaws? Well, I think there are uh, two things involved. One comes from the holier-than-thou work, which is we're overweighting our intentions and the power of our personality to produce things. That That's part of what's going on when we Repeat that, the power of our personality the to power produce of our things? Because, well, um, I will do this because I want to do this. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, uh, that is part, uh, that's something that we overestimate. The other is the competence angle, which is we really don't know what we don't know. And the, one the Rumsfeld unknown unknowns? Well, is that uh, what that the world is? is filled with unknown unknowns. And, uh, and we don't know them. Well, not only do we not know them, <laughs> we don't pay attention to the fact that we don't know them. I uh -huh. mean, uh, to many people out there, the idea of unknown unknowns is still a novel concept. Uh, but it is something that uh, runs they their lives. They just don't know. They, they, they don't know what they don't know. But there is a lot of work showing that people just don't pay attention to what they don't know when they're making predictions or when they're planning things out. They don't uh, sit back and ask, okay, what is it that I don't know here? What's still open? Uh, what are the possibilities that uh, I'm not considering? Not only that, am I considering the fact that there are unknown unknowns and I should be planning for that possibility? So... You mentioned earlier planning. Uh, I saw something kind of interesting around January 19th of this year. That's the date when most people's New Year's resolutions fail. Mm -hmm. does, does that sound remotely plausible or is that just um, something else from the internet? I'm to... surprised that our, our resolutions last that long. Oh, really? Yes. No kidding. So, so why that raises the next question. If we have all the best intentions and we want to fill in the blanks, stop smoking, exercise, uh, lose weight, whatever it is, why is it that when we make these sorts of plans, all as a group on the same date every year, I can't imagine, why would that not work? Well, it doesn't work because uh, the world is r r r waiting for us in some sense. It does have those unknown unknowns, and it does have external forces that are going to defeat us. And what we tend to do is we tend to focus on our plans. What am I going to do? Uh, what are my intentions? Uh, what are the steps that I'm going to take? What we really should do is interview people who've tried to do this before and find out what the real difficulties are. Uh -huh. There are going to be many difficulties that we haven't anticipated. Uh, there are going to be many difficulties that we don't know about. Um, uh, and not only that, there are probably tricks, strategies, tactics, plans that we can make that we wouldn't think of, but someone else has thought of them and they actually work. So if we actually consulted with people who've um, traveled the road before us, uh, we would do a much better job, I think, anticipating uh, the difficulties we have lying ahead, as well as being better armed with strategies that have a better chance of success. All right, so let me push back on that a little bit. The diet industry is like a $26 billion sector of the economy, and they all have the magic um, bullet. And yet, 
everybody in this country seems to be increasingly overweight. Um, mm. Diabetes is a problem. There are all these weight-related issues. If we could speak to other people and have that conversation who have been successful, uh, how does that work given the vast numbers of people um, who need assistance losing weight? Uh, that's a very uh, good question. By the way, evolutionarily, this is a very novel task for our species. You, having extra weight is a good survival thing if you have a shorter lifespan. We now live beyond that, ad that adaptation. I, I don't think cholesterol was a big problem 10,000 years ago. No, oh, I think that's right. And it probably wasn't a big problem even up to 100 years ago. I mean, getting calories was the, the issue right. uh, up to very, very recently. Uh, so as a species, we are dealing with a very novel uh, task uh, in trying to lose weight. Uh, I think that uh, there are some common sense things that uh, uh, people can do. Um, but one of the things they can do is uh, reset two things. The first is what's a realistic uh, outcome uh -huh. in terms of losing weight, uh, but also um, having more realism in terms of how much effort uh, and how much time it's going to take to get there, for example. Uh, and also begin to think things more in terms of the long term as opposed to the short term. I mean, a lot of people think, how do I lose weight this month? No, the question is, how do you keep the weight, how do you lose weight and then keep the weight off for right. years and years and years? Um, but I think as, uh, certainly as a society, I think it's taking a while for the collective wisdom to form because it does turn out to be a particularly difficult task. So my, I go for an annual physical every year. My GP is also a cardiologist, and he's one of these old-school doctors. When they're done with the tests, you go into their office, you sit down, and you have a conversation, and we go through everything. It's all good. And he says, you have any questions for me? And I'm like, yeah, I'd like to drop a few pounds. What do you suggest? And he very conspiratorially looked over each shoulder and, and then leaned forward and whispered to me, eat less food. <laughs> and um, I'm like, Doc, you know, there's a giant industry whose whole purpose is to not share that advice, mm. but it turns out to be good advice. Yes. So uh, eating a little less food, you can lose some weight. It's, it's, um, it's quite fascinating, and yet it's harder to do than you would imagine, than oh. I, certainly than I imagine. No, I think that's right. Well, certainly in the United States, it's harder. Um, one of the things I think is interesting, now this isn't psychology, this is just my personal life, is every so often uh, I spend time in Germany. Uh -huh. And I always lose weight in Germany without even trying. And, now, why is that? Well, Do you I, not like bratwurst and beer? or? Uh, well, uh, German cuisine is more than that. Not much more, by the way, but <laughs> it is more than that. But, uh, schnitzel? Uh, it's a lot of schnitzel when you don't know anything else. Uh, but, That's a safe choice. Uh, it's a safe choice. Uh, but I think most uh, – well, uh, in Germany, the portions are small. Uh, in the rest of the world, the portions are small. That's exactly right, and, that, and that's an issue. Uh, most of the calories in a meal are conveyed by the sauce and the, and the inevitable beer you're going to drink. Right. Or the wine you're going to drink. Uh, but there's also just much more walking. Oh, really? Or bike riding. Yeah, but can you walk off that many calories? I mean, if you're Michael Phelps, sure, but for the rest of us, we're not putting in three hours a day of, of sweating. Oh, that's certainly true. But if you just walk, and walking is one physical act our species was built for, right? Uh, it does bring things under control. Um, this isn't scientific. I just know my brother lost quite a bit of weight by uh, buying a beagle and then taking the, the beagle <laughs> out for eight to nine mile walks every weekend. And uh, that worked for him. Uh, and so there are strategies that work, maybe different strategies work for different people. 
Um, but the key is often um, what we will tend to do is we'll tend to try to solve the question ourselves on, using only ourselves as the source of knowledge. It's good to consult. It's good to find out who's had a success. It's good to confer with other people. That can only broaden the, the knowledge and the wisdom uh, that we have um, at our disposal whenever we have a difficult task like losing weight. And I got to ask, why are you in Germany each year? Uh, I have a collaboration there in Cologne uh, with a couple of researchers doing work on trust. This is where the interest in norms comes in. Uh huh. Uh, and that's been going on for many, many years. And there have been many, many uh, meals uh, during the course of that collaboration. And much weight has been lost when I'm over there. Huh, interesting. I have a bunch more questions, including some on trust. Can you stick around a few sure. moments? We have been speaking with David Dunning, professor of psychology at the University of Michigan. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and stick around and check out our podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things psychology-related. You can find that on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Professor Dunning, I don't even know what to call you. David, thank you so much for doing this. I have been looking forward to this for a long time. And there, I have all these formal questions, and we kind of work our way through that. That's my crutch. But I have all these other questions that that I've been dying to ask you. And, and the big one was on that chart, which you surprised me with. I didn't realize you guys had, hadn't created that, and that only in 2018 mm. did you end up validating what the internet intuited about your work. So that's fascinating. The The thing that intrigues me so much, why? Why is it that the way we learn is to start from zero, assume we have knowledge that we don't, and then build on that, and all of a sudden there's an insight and we realize oh, we are idiots. We don't know half of what we're talking about. And from from that broken down position, are we able to rebuild some true confidence relative to skills versus the false confidence? And so the big question is, what is it about the species that has this inherent in it? Because it seems to cause widespread problems across society. Well, uh, two things. I mean, let me start off with the things we, we don't pay attention to. We don't pay attention to what we don't know. We've already talked about that. And we also don't pay attention to luck and its potential role sure. in success and failure, uh, for example. So we set that aside. Um, where this comes from in terms of we think we've got this is that actually in many situations uh, we start from zero and we do get it. Uh, that is um, – uh, Every situation we face in one way or another, this interview, for example, is a new situation. It, do, it doesn't exactly replicate the past. It's unique. It's unique. And our brain is able to fetch a lot of little elements of knowledge from everywhere to figure out, okay, what is this? How do I deal with this? What's the next move? I mean, the genius of our brain is taking something novel and 
coming to an understanding of it. This is similar enough to that that I could use what I learned last time to work my way through it. That's right. Uh, and uh, that's essential for the species to survive. But sometimes, you know, that skill is going to derail. It's going to lead us to something that's absolutely wrong. Uh, but it'll look exactly right. That is, it'll look like all those experiences where it was novel, we figured out what was going on, uh, we figured out what we, we should do. So, for example, if you have a friend who's drowning in the lake, you're on the dock, and next, and you don't have life preservers, but you do have a basketball and a bowling ball next to you, you know which ball to throw them, right. depending on, you know. How much what, you like them, sure. How much you like them, exactly. Um, we, we can innovate. Uh, that's, uh, uh, that's what we're, uh, we're built to do. The problem is those innovations may become misapplied. And that's where the Dunning-Kruger effect comes in. We've um, worked from this genius. We've worked from this uh, amazing database we have in our squishy little organic uh, driver in our uh, server in our head. And, um, but we've misapplied. And we don't realize that until, well, after the uh, disaster has happened. So we're, we're not aware of what we don't know, our blind spots. We're, we're, we underestimate luck. And I, I've seen some writings that say when we're successful, we credit it to our own skill. Mm -hmm. And when we're unsuccessful, we credit it to bad luck. And not only that, but with the op we do the opposite with other people. When they're successful, well, they got lucky. And when they're unsuccessful, it's because they're not very skillful. That sort of back to the I'm special thing, that seems to permeate everything, doesn't it? It, it does. And that is exactly the I'm special thing. But I, one thing I should mention, though, is the I'm special thing, though, might be constrained in other parts of the globe. That is, this so is, it could be cultural. It, oh, there's a cultural element, no doubt. We've actually studied that. That this is something that attaches much more to people with a heritage that's American, that's Canadian, that's Western European. Uh, if you're coming from uh, uh, an Eastern culture, uh, you don't do um, as much or if at all this overestimation of self or this I'm special stuff that you'll find Americans do all the time. Huh. And now I would imagine in China where there's a billion plus people, it's harder to just assume you're special, or is that not even relevant? It's cultural more than anything. Well, it's cultural in the sense of is the emphasis on me and what I can do and what can I impose upon the world, that's very Western, mm -hmm. as opposed to how do I fit in, how do I harmonize, how do I fulfill the role uh, that I've been assigned or the role that I've fallen into, and that's much more Eastern. And you're just going to have a very different way of thinking if you're in the first culture as opposed to the second culture. Huh. So, so you earlier we were talking about trust, um, and and I'm kind of intrigued by that. There, there's a question that is, I guess, sort of obvious. Why do we trust strangers? Why are we so susceptible to being defrauded or scammed? It seems that every other day I'm reading about some different Ponzi scheme or some different um, insanity where people trusted someone they clearly shouldn't and. It got them into a lot of trouble. Uh, I think that comes from the fact we talk, we talked about norms earlier, mm -hmm. and one of the norms we have uh, that goes right down deep into the heart of what it means to have a conversation is we assume what the other person is telling us is true unless there is evidence otherwise. But the assumption is truth. Uh, that's the presumption that we have, and that makes sense. Imagine a world in which I or we all distrusted what the other person is telling us. There would not be much coordination going on in the world. Um, so if you ask for directions, a person tells you how to get to the Bloomberg building, you assume uh, they're telling you the truth because imagine if you said, no, I don't trust them. 
what are you going to do? Right. So, Why would you even ask them in the first place? Exactly. So there is a norm or a presumption of truth uh, that serves us well for the most uh, part in life. But um, if the other person is malevolent, if the other person is incompetent, that uh, presumption is going to lead to uh, potential folly, for example. But we, uh, we do have actually ongoing work looking at uh, people's ability to tell uh, true science headlines from fake science headlines. And what's interesting to us is that um, uh, the error people tend to make is they tend to believe fake things are true. They make that error much more than they do the reverse error, thinking a true thing is fake. So in general, people are gullible, uh-huh. uh, uh, so to speak. What's interesting, though, is you ask people, this is one of the rare areas where people, uh, they don't say, oh, I have no bias. I see it the way it is. Rather, what they, t- they say they do have a bias. They're too skeptical. Uh-huh. Uh, they're too wary of information out there. They're more likely to uh, distrust a true thing than to accept a false thing. So this is the first time I've ever seen some, uh, a bias with a superpower. That is, most people are gullible, but they actually believe they have the reverse bias, that they're too skeptical. But it huh. all comes from a, uh, uh, from a, a norm, if you will, that uh, for the most part in life, in day-to-day living, it works. It makes uh, life eminently easier if we assume what the other person is telling us is true, because at the very least, what the other person is telling us is sincere. Right. That, that's quite interesting. I'm surprised in this era of misinformation and all the false memes all over the Internet that people still— think their problem is, well, I'm too skeptical. It's clear, at least from the popular culture, that we too easily believe things we shouldn't. Oh, that's absolutely right. Uh, And I have to admit, we don't exactly have a handle on why do people think the reverse. Uh, That's fascinating. And uh, once again, it's one of those uh, findings we get where I look at it and I I go, I have no idea why this is happening. That happens far too often in my work. So what about nudges? Uh, is there a way to, to and I'm re- referencing uh, Sunstein and Thaler's um, work on, on small little systemic ways to steer people in the right direction. Is that something that can help people make better decisions or are we just left to our own faulty devices? Well, uh, our devices are always going to be somewhat faulty, but we can reduce the fault, if you will. We can never be perfect, but we can uh, reduce our vulnerability. And, for example, we talk about gullibility. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are a number of um, resources that are being developed on the Internet, even as we speak, that are focused on how do we get people to better evaluate what they're hearing over the Internet. Mm -hmm. And uh, just to go over what the key move is, is that typically what people do is when they see something that's a provocative headline, for example, they look at the website and try to figure out just based on that headline and the website and its design itself, is this something that I can believe? And so if it has a snazzy professional picture, for example, they decide it must be more believable. Um, No, that's not the way to decide whether or not something is true or not. Uh, Instead of internal reading, what you have to do is something that all fact checkers know, which is you have to do lateral reading. You have to go to other sources. You have to go to other people uh, once again and find out are there other sources saying the same thing, uh, is there any comment on the reliability of the source you're looking at now from from other places? Uh, am I looking at something that's mainstream or am I looking at something that's made up? Um, 
what people have to become is a little bit more like a journalist. And what journalists do and what fact checkers do is they check for multiple sources. They go to other sources to take a look at whether or not this piece of information is one that I can rely on. And so in terms of nudges, there, there are thematic judges, uh, uh, nudges like uh, thema uh, lateral reading. Um, but there are also more specific things now that are popping up on the Internet uh, that can be quite helpful, uh, at least in this, uh, on this issue. Hmm. That, that's quite intriguing, although... Uh, I guess you could do the same thing with the deep fakes that are coming out. Some of the videos are really horrifying because they just look so real. How can you do a lateral check and, and find out if something like that is real? Well, uh, I actually do this. I actually Google and see if anybody else has basically said, oh, well, this is a deep fake. Uh, basically. So uh, you can't tell from, from the video itself because they are incredibly good now. Right. You really have to go to other sources and find out what the other sources are saying. So, uh, and often what you find, for example, if you do that, uh, you'll find out this videotape was created by such and such, or this videotape actually comes from some other incident that has nothing to do uh, with what's going on uh, here. But basically... Uh, in terms of dealing with misinformation, I think uh, either whether we're talking about students in school or whether we're talking about adults, the thing we have to do is uh, learn a little journalism. Huh. If you By the way, uh, just a quick, other countries have actually gone this route in a big way. So Finland, because it's right next to Russia and has been at, at a cool war with Russia – for the last hundred years, knows that Russian disinformation is coming over. And so they're actually training students and training adults about how to tell fake from real, you know, in an intensive way um, that, uh, well, we could borrow a few of their techniques. Huh, quite, quite interesting. There was something else in the book I had to ask you about. What is anosog? Anosognosia. Anosognosia. I don't know if I pronounced that right. but Neither I do I. certainly have no... I know that I have no idea if I pronounce that right. Uh, I can barely spit it out. Uh, that's true, but uh, uh, but I have enough to think I know, and I really haven't checked in a <laughs> right. while to figure out if I really know how to pronounce that. Well, anosognosia is uh, actually a term that comes from um, medicine and has to do with issues where, uh, because of uh, brain injury, uh, people are paralyzed, but don't know that they're paralyzed. So, oh, really? Oh, yeah. So, for example, if you uh, if a person is paralyzed, um, I believe it's the left arm, and put a cup of water in front of them and say, okay, pick up the cup. Well, the person can't move their arm. Uh, they're paralyzed. They can't move their arm. But if you ask the person, why aren't they uh, picking up the cup, they may some say something like, uh, I'm not thirsty. Why would I want to pick up the cup? That is, they have no sort of awareness. Like the, yeah, sort of like the split brain experiments? Well, it's split brain experiments are exactly that, where uh, the, uh, the one side of the brain can point to the right object, uh, but that's not the side of the brain that controls um, uh, talking, uh, that controls verbal skills. But if you ask the person, why did you point to that, they can come up with something. That is, that's part of our brain is very good at uh, interpreting um, how to understand novel situations. So we can come up with justifications. We can come up with rationales for why we do what we do quite easily. Our brain is an incredible storyteller. Um, but, uh, you know, incredible storytellers sometimes tell fiction. And our brain is quite good at coming up with fiction at times. Huh. That, that's quite interesting. I, I didn't know you were going to go – where you were going to go with um, the idea of, of that – injury and, and paralysis, it started to remind me a little bit of the aphasias where people 
lose the ability to speak, but they could sing, or they can't write, but they could still read. Mm -hmm. And it seems like there's almost a very specific part of the brain that performs very specific functions. And if it's injured, everything else related still works, just that one skill seems to go away. That's right. But the issue with a lot of physical maladies, and our work can be uh, thought of as, as a metaphorical extension of that to intellectual uh, capabilities, uh, a lot of people don't know the physical maladies that they've got. So as people become hard of hearing, they often don't know that they're becoming hard of hearing. And so they wonder why everybody's mumbling. Right. Uh, for example, a lot of people who are colorblind don't know they're colorblind. Really? Because they've never not been colorblind. I had no idea. I thought you would, order, like when you look at a stoplight, you can see, what are people talking about with red lights and green lights? They all look gray to me. Does that not register or is that... Apparently not, because you have you've never experienced red or you've never experienced green, so you don't know what you're missing. Huh. When you mention everybody's mumbling, when I turned fifty, I remember having I, this is absolutely true. I had a conversation with my wife. We're sitting at the breakfast table one Sunday, and I said, I don't know what's going on with the New York Times, but they're using some cheaper paper. <laughs> Look how fuzzy mm. the words are, and and then I said, Look, the Wall Street Journal, it's the same thing. And my wife says, Idiot, you need glasses. And I'm like, What? No, no, I have perfect vision. She hands me her glasses, and I'm like, oh, I, I had no idea my vision had decayed so much at the ripe old age of 51 mm -hmm. um, some years ago. And it's that exact same thing. You have no idea that the gradual decay is taking place. No, that's right. So so what else are you working on? Your, your field of study has very much um, evolved since mm -hmm. the original Dunning-Kruger work. What, what else are you looking at these days? Well, a, a related idea that we've been uh, looking at quite a bit is this idea of hypocognition. Hypo. Hypocognition. Uh, and uh, the best way to explain it is if you don't know what hypocognition is, congratulations, you've just experienced hypocognition. Okay. Uh, hypocognition is not having a concept, if you will. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, not having the idea of unknown unknowns, uh, in the financial, a lot of people invest, uh, but they don't really have the concept of exponential growth or compound interest. Yeah, compounding is so, most probability and statistical things are very counterintuitive. People just can't wrap their head around it. And when you show people compounding charts, they're very often credulous, incredulous that, wait, this much money can't. I had a whole discussion about the number of 401k millionaires. And the person said, well, maybe years ago, but you couldn't do that now. Why can't you do that now? It's, you've still got however many years it is, and mm -hmm. here's what your expected returns are over 40 years. Oh, and P.S., your contribution levels are, are up. It's easier today than it was 30, 40 years ago. Oh, that's right. But if you don't have the concept, uh, what, what you are talking about seems alien, foreign, or a little bit of a con. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but uh, we're studying that uh, in a number of ways because we're interested, for example, what if people don't have a concept of scientific rigor? They don't know all the rules that I have to live under, for example, to right. verify or make the case for any sort of conclusion that I want to reach. And that turns out to be related to uh, two perceptions out there in the world. The first perception is scientists can say whatever they want. Uh, is that I, a real perception? Do people really think that? A plural, uh, 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 not a majority, but a clear percentage of people believe that. Is that specific to this country or is that global? That I don't know. I've only studied it within uh, this country. 
Uh, and it's also related, by the way, to distrust in science, that you just you don't have to listen to scientists. What they have to say really isn't useful. Um, and that it all does trace back in part, but an important part, to not knowing that how much work it is to produce a piece of scientific knowledge. You, you, you don't have the idea of control condition, random assignment. I can go on and on. Um, you can't cherry pick. Uh, people don't know these rules. And as a consequence, they think scientists are just some... Uh, uh, professors in their office dreaming up a conclusion and then collecting some data to window dress it, for example. And yet we use technology to such a great deal. Do, do people think these are like, ooh, look, a magic box that I can speak to people on? It's magic. Do they not get technology and engineering is based on fundamental science? I mean, that seems pretty obvious. If science doesn't work, then how could you fly in a plane? How could you take medicine? How could you use, you know, there's, we get into an elevator, at least in cities every day. Is it a magic box or is there science behind it? It well, just, it seems so hard to accept that people are really science skeptical. Uh, I, I, well, I agree, but I assure you that that percentage of people does exist. How, what percentage of people that you study are Truly science skeptical. Well, we're not using representative samples, but in the samples we get, and, and they're actually better educated than, than the average American, it's about 20, 25%, let's say. Really? But I can't, but I, can't I, I don't know what the real percentage is because I haven't done anything that's a good representative uh, snapshot, let's say, of the United States. But you have to understand that a lot of people, uh, I mean, the um, ignorance of the scientific method runs so deep that a lot of people don't understand that scientists collect data. Right. Uh, they they don't understand that that's, a, that's, the, uh, that's the process, and that data have the final authority in what you're able to conclude and what you're able to say. It just doesn't appear to them. So if you ask um, students, let's say in college or in high school, do they believe in oxygen or do they believe in the, uh, in the electron, uh, they'll go, yes, yes, why? And they don't cite an experiment. They don't cite data. Uh, they basically say that's what everybody says. That's what my teacher says. That's what uh, my parents say. So for a lot of people, um, the idea of data is not what they think about. Um, they're basing their beliefs on what other people say. By the way, which is the same basis they use uh, to believe in things like reincarnation or ghosts or karma. Uh, that is, the basis for people's scientific beliefs tends to be the same as the basis of their supernatural beliefs. So it's just whatever the societal consensus is, they're accepting. It's social proof. That's exactly social right. Social proof. Huh. And, and, you know, the one question, before I get to my favorite question, the one thing I wanted to ask you earlier but for, didn't get to was, was comes back to the 1999 paper blowing up and becoming so popular. After that happens, how did that affect your subsequent research? Did it affect the topics you picked? Did it affect the options you had available? Like what did, what did this paper blowing up due to your subsequent research? Well, for many years, it didn't do anything uh, because um, it was known, but the internet wasn't fully in place yet. It wasn't a thing yet. I think that's happened far much more recently. Uh, so I went off and studied whatever I studied. Uh, but then the world sort of told me, no, we want you to look at this. Uh, and that's okay uh, because uh, this was always the paper I didn't know how to follow up. Really? Yes. Uh, so you have the the 2018 follow-up. What else came out of this paper? Oh, a number of things have come out of this paper. So the question is, when are people most vulnerable to the Dunning-Kruger effect? Um, 
uh, and the answer is when they have an answer, uh, when they believe they have expertise, or they can spin a yarn, if you will. I mean, there are times when you just simply cannot come up with an answer, and you know that you don't know. Right. Uh, you know when you're guessing, and that's some recent work uh, uh, we now have under review that shows that people know when they're guessing. Uh, the problem with the Dunning-Kruger effect is when you don't think you're guessing um, and coming up with the wrong answer. Uh, it's led to wor this work on hypocognition. It's led to this work on gullibility. Uh, we're now looking at do people know when they really need to ask for advice? Uh, that's an important consequence. But a lot of these questions really weren't formed in my head until I started interacting with uh, people like you mm -hmm. or reporters or people in the airport. Uh, for example. Are people randomly stopping you to ask Dunning-Kruger questions? Well, it has happened. I mean, uh, you There's know, no escaping the baggage carousel. You're a prisoner over there. Well, no, well uh, luckily no one can see my little label uh, on, the, on the luggage, but uh, if my name gets called, you know, to, to get a seat assignment or whatever, something like that, uh, occasionally a person will come over and say, are, are you that Dunning? <laughs> I kind of go, this is wild. Um, <laughs> so it, it's had that uh, impact. Um, but uh, but basically, uh, I'm in, let's say, the last act of my research career, and the world has told me this is what it wants me to look at. So we're, I'm, I'm now really asking the question, uh, do, re do people really not know what they don't know, and what implications does that have? Huh, quite fascinating. When, when is that research coming out? Uh, hopefully soon to a journal and, a, and eventually a book near you. Excellent. All right, so um, let me jump to my favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. Feel free to, to go as long or short as you like with this. Sure. Um, and these are really designed to be telling as to who you are, because we may not know who you are. Um, what was the first car you ever owned, year, make, and model? Uh, the first uh, car I owned was a 1976 Ford Pinto. It was <laughs> a mint julep green Ford Pinto. So if anybody is interested, you should Google mint julep green Ford Pinto, and you will see pictures of a color that exists nowhere else on this world. Yeah, that, that is insult to injury, a terrible car in an awful color. Oh, and that, it, this car was the epitome of all of that. So um, now, so a little more interesting question. Uh, what, what are you streaming or listening to or, or watching these days? Uh, well, in terms of streaming, uh, my tastes these days run to, uh, uh, let's say, intellectual fantasy series like uh, Watchmen or mm -hmm. uh, Westworld is about to uh, come on, uh, Star Trek Picard, uh, for example. Uh, in terms of uh, streaming music, well, I, I, I'm, I'm a BBC2 uh, excuse me, a BBC Six, CBC Two kind of guy. Uh -huh. uh, I'm listening to a lot of Canadian pop music at the moment. Okay, I was going to say, what is BBC Six? Oh, BBC Six is basically British pop music. British, um, uh, like Brit pop from the '70s or more recent? Oh no, it's contemporary. It's more alternative, mm -hmm. if you will. But I find what's going on in Britain and Canada to be more interesting than what's going on in the United States in terms of pop. I, I've been listening to Bob Harris on BBC for forever, mm. and I love the sort of. He covers all all genres and decades. It's always an interesting. Uh, and that's exactly what these two channels. Do, oh, really? Both the Canadian and the yeah. Huh. That that's very interesting. Um, and if you like Watchmen, I just had this conversation yesterday. Have you seen on Amazon Prime The Boys? No. All right. So, really, very quickly, it's a sort of anti superhero world mm. where all the superheroes are these corporate owned 
entities, and they turn out to really not be as saving society as they appear to be mm-hmm. so much as earning a corporate buck. And it's really quite fascinating. If you're at all interested mm. in uh, Watchmen is not quite, but there are some parallels there mm-hmm. that the the uh, it, it was really fascinating. It's a little grisly parts of it, um, but it's cartoonish. So it's not mm-hmm. real volume. It's not real violence. It's cartoon violence, although, you know, it, it can get a little gory. At, but it's, at, but it's having a contemporary theme. Yes, or, totally. Or reimagining, you know, this sort of genre in light of contemporary themes, that would be very interesting. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what's the most important thing that people don't know about David Dunning? Hmm, interesting question. Uh, well, originally, uh, when I was a kid, I first wanted to be a cartoonist and then a screenwriter. Uh-huh. In fact, when I was 13... I actually submitted a spec script to the TV show MASH. No kidding. Uh, it was rejected, but I had in my hand, I've since lost them, and I, uh, uh, I regret, regret losing them. I had little handwritten notes from Larry Gelbart, the producer of the show, who was wow. then and now a hero of mine. Wow. So, yeah, um, he's an interesting guy. Yeah. Um, who were some of your early mentors? What psychologists influenced your approach to what you do? Uh, uh, I would have to say I had a great set of mentors, both as an undergraduate and as a graduate student. Uh, undergraduate, uh, Michigan State professors of Larry Massey and Joel Aronoff were very uh, influential. Uh, then I went to Stanford, and I was a Lee Ross student. Uh, and uh, Michigan State taught me rigor. Um, Stanford and Lee taught me humanity, how to put humanity into the work, make it an interesting human story. Uh, but I don't think anybody uh, who was around, everybody who was around Amos Tversky thinks of him as an influence. Um, because if you uh, want to know what smart looks like, Amos was smart. And this is often something I tell undergraduates. Um, pick a professor who everybody says is the smartest because you need to see what smart looks like. Right. That'll be the best. The content doesn't matter. You want to see what smart looks like. Uh, so uh, uh, Amos Tversky, um, uh, Phoebe Ellsworth, uh, were tremendous influences and in basically how I spend my day. Hmm. Quite, quite interesting. Uh, tell us about some of your favorite books. What are you reading these days? What do you like? Well, uh, the problem with the books I read now is they're all related to my work. Right. And reading is a little bit tough because I do it for the job so much. Um, but uh, so actually what I've been doing is going back to classics from my youth. So the the book form of Swing to Cambodia uh-huh. is something I recently read. And I'm trying to find Gertel Escher Bach. Uh, I can't believe you, you're bringing up some of my all-time classics. There you go. Well, I, I want to go back now that I'm older. And what do I think of them now, uh, for example, is the way to think about it. But um, a lot of what I do is I just read long form uh, on the web. So every morning I get the Ritzholtz reads uh-huh. and uh, uh, do you find them interesting because I really sift through a ton of stuff to find 10 really interesting things uh, you're sifting uh, at least to me works very well if okay. you will uh, because I find great things to read the, the thing that I have to do is discipline myself not to tweet uh, the readings you're suggesting because then I'd just be ripping you off feel <laughs> free oh, listen okay. I'm just putting together a list of except for Tuesdays where it's 15 instead of 10 I don't know where two for Tuesday came from <laughs> but somehow that's become I I am um, a creature of habit and I've learned that if I want to do do something if I can turn it into a habit I can make it repetitive 
And it's really just once you start doing something for a month or two, mm-hmm. it becomes ingrained. Forget a decade or two. That's a whole different thing. And that the reads began as a way of just being organized. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. so much stuff to read. Let me eliminate all the junk and let me see what's left that, that's good. People don't realize this is really a golden age of journalism yes. and writing. I used to go through the process of the morning of figuring out what's relevant and what mm-hmm. do I want to read. That sort of concept of curation by uh, extreme prejudice, by, by saying, if this isn't well done mm-hmm. and well researched and well written and on a topic that's interesting, I can't be bothered with it because everything is so ephemeral and superficial, led to, I, I used to do that manually. I used to printed out this is a hundred years ago Mm. and someone said hey could you just give me a list of what you're reading instead of a hard Mm -hmm. copy and oh okay and that eventually became uh that eventually became the the morning reads and i think i've been doing that for like 20 years or so oh wow it's it's i'm at the point now where i could be a sentence or two into a piece and i'm like nope (laughs) like i could tell immediately if something is is good or bad um, so you're not reading a whole lot of books, in other words? Uh, no, uh, basically because I do so much reading that uh, I prefer sh- uh, shorter, punchier things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're absolutely right. There's so much terrific information, uh, some terrific blogs on the web, for example, uh, that I concentrate on that. Give us some some blog names. What uh, do you like? The, the blog name I would point out actually is a blog called Stumbling and Mumbling. Oh, uh, sure. I remember that. Yeah. From That became big about... 10, 12, 15 years well, ago? Well, it still goes on. Yeah. And uh, I, I find the uh, the blogger to be extremely persuasive. Uh, uh-huh. It's about England, so it's not about the United States. Right. So that's, uh, so that's good. And um, often has some insights I would dearly love to steal. Um, but uh, but uh, that one I find to be quite good. In terms of political commentary, uh, the blog Progress Pond I find to be extremely interesting. Not familiar, um, but well, it, it, it's a it's a, a, demo, a democratic activist, uh-huh. if you will. But he's rather clear-eyed. Um, uh, he does stand off from the sermon drunk of the day to really try to figure out what's going on or to project what's going so, on. So, not a Bernie it. bro. Not a, in fact, he is not a Bernie bro. That's <laughs> absolutely clear. It's by the time this broadcasts, we will already have had the Super Tuesday results. We will be pretty deep into um, uh, the primary season. We may even have a nominee by then. That that'll be kind of uh, kind of interesting. Do you, when you look at politics, do you ever find yourself with opinions and then catch yourself saying, self saying, I have no expertise in this. This is just my own opinion. Are you self aware of your own Dunning Kruger? Well, in politics, absolutely. So whenever I, I pronounce something in politics, I usually uh, presage it or, or, or preamble it with, well, this is for entertainment value only. <laughs> so Quite quite interesting. Um, tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Uh, well, uh, a, a chronic failure I had, ultimately uh, it was successful or the project was successful, but it took 15 years, uh, was this work on trust where uh, basically the finding is is that People trust complete strangers, even though economics tells us they shouldn't. Because why would a person ever honor your trust? They're a complete stranger. Uh, but uh, people do trust, uh, and our civilization profits because of that. And I looked at that, and I said, okay, clearly the economics is failing. Clearly two years, and, and a psychological team will be able to figure this out. 
so I tried hypothesis after hypothesis after hypothesis. I ran hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of subjects. All my hypotheses um, failed. They often failed in interesting ways. They failed in ways that cohered with one another. But for the life of me, I couldn't figure out what was going on. That ultimately led to this emphasis on norms and the norm of respect and politeness with other people. We trust other people um, because we have to respect them, and to distrust them is to disrespect them. That took 15 years in the making to get to. Uh, what I learned from that, though, is I learned uh, that there can be rules of human nature, but they can be so deep that none of our subjects knew what was going on. Uh, people could never explain it. And I'm the professional, and I couldn't explain it. Some things can run that deep. Uh, so that's what I learned. But that was 15 years of uh, failed data, which I could only bear because of the good graces of tenure. Huh. That's really interesting. Th there's a book that come—it's it, sort of related to the normative issue and, and the trust issue, and there's a whole bunch of cognitive other things, by uh, Will Store called— the Heretics' Adventures with the Enemies of Science. Are you familiar with I'm this? I'm not familiar with it. So, so he is a journalist who embeds himself with all sorts of groups that you would otherwise think of as wacky, extreme, crazy. Mm -hmm. And whether it's flat earthers or science deniers or climate mm. change, it, it's one group after another that's very relevant to the science denial issue. And his sort of thesis is these people aren't bad or evil or dumb. There's something fundamentally wrong with their basic model of the world. Mm -hmm. And once that building block is set, you know, it's like aiming for the moon. If you're off just a little bit, an inch or two here, you're off by millions of miles as you whiz by. Mm -hmm. When their fundamental model of the universe is off, everything constructed on top of that just takes them in these crazy directions. And it's not, hey, these aren't necessarily, some of these are evil people, but that's not necessarily how they went so far astray. It's a fundamental mm -hmm. fundamental error that just keeps compounding. And uh, it's quite fascinating. It's, it's really an interesting book if you've never, uh, if you've, if you've never um, seen it before. Um, so what do you do for fun? What do you do when you're not re reading academic research papers? Well, I'm older, so a lot of what I do is I watch stuff on a screen, whether it be television or not, um, uh, during the – when the term's in session. Um, I'll tend to watch a lot of sports, but not the typical sports. So uh, I'm a big fan of Arsenal, the, the soccer team in England. Okay. And I know that your knowledgeable uh, listeners out there are thinking, oh, I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> no, well, World Cup is fascinating. Yeah. And when you get to what World Cup soccer is really, there's no commercial breaks. It's practically, they don't, you know, American sports, you're used to. Exactly. You know, you, you watch World Cup and like, uh, there have been times where it's like, gee, it's 60 minutes. We haven't had a break yet. It's kind of amazing. Um, and there's a flow to that game that is really unique and, and it, it's a beautiful sport if oh, you appreciate it, yes. it for what it is. It truly is the beautiful game. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of strategy and a lot of incident going on once you've been around it enough to realize what incident is. I mean, there's not much scoring, but that actually makes the games more exciting because a goal matters so much. The games are always on edge and um, uh, things could change in a, in a minute um, that it can truly lead to excitement. 
Uh, but it's also a sport that can truly lead to despair, I found, uniquely. Well, I live in New York, so between the Mets and no. the Knicks, I know all about <laughs> despair. The I, I wish they would stop with the flopping in in World Cup in soccer. It's gotten to be uh, way too much. Yeah. So within your, your field, what are you most optimistic about today? And what are you most pessimistic about? Uh, the most exciting thing in my field uh, right now is the introduction of big data, mm -hmm. uh, if you will. That is, there are many uh, social psychological questions and also questions of interest to people in the world uh, that can be addressed with uh, big data. Um, there's just uh, great sources of data out there. And uh, how it's going to be exploited, I have no idea, but I bet it's going to be great. So in the field of behavioral science in general, I'm very much looking forward to that. As long as uh, people who have the data and, as, uh, and the people who know traditional theory join up. Right. Uh, because it is the case that a lot of people who do traditional theory don't know that these data sources exist. And so opportunities are missed. And the people who have big data don't realize that they can be quite naive in their thinking about how to test the ideas that they have. They need to connect up with the theory people. If that happens, it's going to be great. Huh, quite interesting. I, I, I always look at Facebook, which I'm not a big fan of as a user, and I just imagine they must have unbelievable reams of data about all sorts of individuals and groups and then how um, how they behave in certain situations. i got to think a team of, of research psychologists could have a field day with that. Oh, uh, anthropologists, sociologists, economists, you name it, absolutely. Huh, interesting. And our, our final two questions, what sort of advice would you give to a recent college graduate who was interested in a career in psychology and research? Uh, interest, uh, get some mentors and uh, get more than one. Mm -hmm. essentially, absolutely, uh, whether they be from your, your home institution or any institution you're going to or wherever, uh, people are willing to give advice, and some of it is actually good. Um, but also um, uh, meet people, uh, be uh, somewhat aggressive with that, but also present yourself, give talks, uh, have a blog, for example. Uh, it forces you to think, but it also gets you out there for people to see. And I, I don't think younger folk... Do that, uh, do that much. There are younger folk who do that, but I think um, there could be many more voices added to the mix. And our final question, what do you know about the world of psychology today that you wish you knew 30 years ago or so when you were just beginning your career? Oh, boy, that, uh, that's an extremely interesting uh, question. Um, I... Uh, I sort of wish I had known what the trends were going to be uh, in my field because I've been around the block for quite a bit. And I was uh, the reason I'm in psychology is because of the, uh, the specific issues that were at the forefront of psychology and social psychology at that point. And then it was really about uh, misbelief, uh, errors that people made, and so forth. That's sort of the foundation which I built my career. Uh, now, and, and by the way, what we weren't asked to do is we weren't asked to solve those questions. Uh, the idea of nudging was several decades in, into the future. And now the field is very much about, okay, what do you do about it? Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a little bit behind the younger generation because I didn't have to pay attention to it. And I wish I'd known that at some point the field was going to get to the obvious question of, uh, we have all this knowledge about what people do that is a mistake, how do you get people to avoid those mistakes or repair those mistakes? Or how, in general, do you improve people's lives? Finally, uh, the field got to that. 
I wish someone had come to me and basically said that question is going to be the question in the future. You should prepare. Huh. But, you know, not too long ago, it wasn't really thought of as academics' jobs. It's like, hey, just tell us what the knowledge is and the policymakers will figure out Oh, a that's solution. absolutely right. It was going to be uh, uh, that uh, was going to be offloaded to somebody else. Uh, but it's finally come into the field. And I think in part because science does react to society. And um, uh, now uh, people are developing apps to do this, uh, computer programs to do that, new technology that helps this other thing. So the idea is the end point is how do you develop something that people can use is much more in the heads of younger researchers than it is for older research, uh, researchers. They think of that as the natural uh, end point of research. And uh, I should have gone, I should have been prepared for that shift in time. Huh, quite, quite interesting. Um, thank you, David, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Professor David Dunning of the University of Michigan. If you enjoy this conversation, well, look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of the previous 300-plus conversations we've had over the past five and a half years. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Leave a comment. What was I going to say? Leave a review on Apple iTunes. Uh, if you want to see the daily reads that uh, Professor Dunning referenced, you could find those at ritholtz.com and sign up there. Check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff who helps me put together uh, this conversation each, each week. Sam Shivraj is my producer slash booker. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Nick Falco is my audio engineer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>